A special thanks goes out to the folks at Spotify for bringing you this podcast. Hello again, everyone. Today, the real-life story about trouble on Mount Everest. I'm Tom Zania, and this is Tom Reads Your Story. Coming to you almost live, it's time once again for Tom Reads Your Story, the number one spoken word podcast on the web for audiobooks, social media posts, current events, and just plain whatever. So let's start the show. For the next half hour, I'll be your host. I'm voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And we are back. Welcome back, everyone, to Tom Reads Your Story, the number one spoken word podcast here in America and the entire world and probably the entire solar system or the universe. I don't know. Anyway, I just have an announcement, and that is I'm probably going to be getting back into the audiobook uh, field, at least for a little while. Uh, I have been offered, I haven't signed on to it yet, but I have been offered um, a book of poetry by uh, Stephen Reddick called Tying My Shoes. And I'm kind of looking forward to it. It was a nice little thing to audition for, and now they want me to actually produce it. So what does that mean to you? Well, Tom Reader's story might not always be on. For the next several weeks. But then again, it might. It's going to be on a sort of as available basis. And I don't have that many listeners to begin with. So I would like the few of you out here, out there who are listening to not get too freaked out and to stay with me through this thing um, that, you know, is going to last a little while and that, you know, I might not always have time to produce an episode of Tom Reader's story. Now, I'm sorry about that. If you are an avid listener, um, because uh, you, you don't have to be too freaked out about it. I will be back anyway. Um, so that's what I might be doing. Uh, the episode for today is a day late because I, um, I just had other things to do and I wasn't feeling very well. And, um, I had to just say, uh, I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> I, sorry about that. Uh, I'm glad you, uh, are listening now if you are. Uh, if you're a new person, welcome. If you're a returning person, thank you. So what's, what's happening for today? Today, I want to talk a little bit about, um, mountain climbing. Now I'm not a mountain climber. Uh, I almost fooled a few people, uh, uh, some years ago, a handful of years ago 
uh, we, first of all, I was working at the Top of the Rock Observation Deck, which is a tourist attraction in New York. And we had us have a staff meeting before every shift. And we played a little game and we got up in front of the group and tried to make them believe that we had a certain thing in our past. And the certain thing in my past that I made up was that I was a mountain climber and that not many people know about it, but I've climbed a lot of mountains and that in the mid eighties, uh, I was part of a team that scaled the summit of Mount Everest. One guy almost believed it. (laughs) Anyway, I've always thought that was an interesting subject before that. And still after that, um, There have been movies made about scaling Everest. There have been plenty of documentaries that you can find on YouTube that I'm always plugging, but for good reason. Um, And uh, the article that I'm going to read from getpocket.com is about a real-life event that happened in, I think, the 90s uh, on Everest. And I'm dividing it up into several, well, maybe just two parts, two or three parts. But the first part will be today. And it's it's an interesting little story. Uh, And I'm glad that um, I haven't had the bright idea to go and climb Mount Everest. I've never done it. But uh, I think you'll find this a very interesting story about what happened on Mount Everest. Chaos at the Top of the World It was one of the most viral photos of 2019. A horde of climbers clogged atop Mount Everest. But it only begins to capture the deadly realities of what transpired that day at 29,000 feet. Chaos at the Top of the World Written by Joshua Hammer From GetPocket.com It was morning and bright, and Reinhard Grubhofer, depleted and dehydrated, hoisted his body over a crest and rose uneasily. There, from the summit of Mount Everest, he could see everything. How the earth curved gorgeously in all directions. How wisps of clouds sailed beneath his boots. The view, out beyond his worries, was beautiful. But closer at hand, he could see trouble taking shape. He could feel it, too, shuffling with a dozen other climbers onto a slim patch of ground roughly the size of two ping-pong tables. The space was crowded. Shakily, Grubhofer held up a small flag and posed for photos with his climbing partner, a fellow Austrian named Ernst Landgraf, who'd made the slog to the summit uneasily. It had been a brutal day. Their thirteen-man party had awoken at eleven the previous night and trudged through the darkness up the icy incline of Everest's north side. Along the way, the temperatures dipped to well below zero. At some point, the water bottle that Grubhofer packed had frozen into a solid brick. He was thirsty and exhausted, 
but he tried not to pay attention to any of that now. After weeks of waiting and years of planning, Grubhofer had made it. It was 9.30 a.m. on May 23, 2019, and a less experienced climber might have thought that the hard part was over. Grubhofer knew better. As he jockeyed for a place to stand at the top of the world, his Sherpa's radio came alive. Kerry Cobbler, the founder of the Swiss mountaineering agency that had organized Grubhofer's expedition, was radioing urgently from base camp. Bad weather was moving in fast. They had to descend quickly. Grubhofer looked down toward Nepal and could see gray clouds sweeping across the southern face of the mountain. There was something else down there, too, a line of a hundred or so climbers in brightly colored suits snaking up the side of the mountain. The crowd seemed incredible, like a bag of skittles had been scattered down the slope. On the north side, Grubhofer knew, more climbers were tracing his trail up the mountain from Tibet, too. He hopped off the summit and crossed two windswept snowfields, digging unsteadily into the crust with his crampons. Whenever Grubhofer encountered somebody ascending the mountain, etiquette forced him to unclip himself from the rope to step around the climber. Each time he did so, he was aware that a gust of wind or a misstep could send him hurtling to an uncertain fate. Grubhofer had tossed his goggles after they'd frozen in the night and was now wearing Adidas Sports sunglasses, which fogged over constantly, requiring him to remove his down mittens in the cold to clean the lenses. A tiny reminder of the multitude of dangerous unpleasantries and unforeseen challenges that crop up on Everest. None of this was new to Grubhofer. A wiry 45-year-old with a thatch of reddish-blonde hair, he'd taken up mountaineering 15 years earlier at 30. That's when Grubhofer, depressed following a divorce, vowed to restart his life. He set out for the Himalayas and scaled 21,250-foot Mira Peak in Nepal. I was not fit enough, but it got me hooked in, he recalls. Over the following decade, Grubhofer ticked off three of the seven summits, the highest peaks on each of the seven continents. Everest would be his fourth. He took his first shot in 2015, but the adventure was cut short. He was dug in with his team at 21,300 feet at what's known as Advanced Base Camp when an earthquake hit the region, setting off an avalanche that killed over a dozen people at the Nepalese base camp. Grubhofer's expedition was untouched, but no one from either the Tibetan or the Nepalese side of Everest summited that season. Returning to the mountain hadn't been cheap. Grubhofer, who works for a sightseeing company in Vienna, paid $65,000 for a package that included travel to and from Tibet, visas, guide, and Sherpa fees, and the $11,000 permit issued by the Chinese government. Reaching the summit this time around represented a special kind of thrill, but he refused to celebrate until he was safely down the mountain. Late in the morning, as he made his way along the crowded trail, a fog rolled in. The wind whipped up, and snow began to fall. Around noon, 
Grubhofer arrived at the most dangerous obstacle on the northern side. Step two, a roughly 100-foot drop, negotiated this time by three rickety ladders placed against the rock and ice facade. The first ladder was about 30 feet long. To reach it, a climber had to twist his body to face the mountain and extend his heavy, crampon-covered boot past an overhang, feeling blindly for the first rung. It was here that the half-dozen climbers ahead of him ground to a sudden halt. Why the hell aren't we moving? Grubhofer wondered. What's holding up the line? He swiftly identified the problem. A woman in a red climbing suit, adorned with the emblems of a Chinese mountaineering group, perched just before the drop-off, unwilling to go forward. The woman's two Sherpa guides were firmly encouraging her to descend the ladder, but she remained paralyzed in apparent fear. For those in the logjam behind her, there was no going around. Everybody was stuck, freezing in the storm. Nearly six miles high in the Himalayas, Grubhofer knew conditions were unforgiving. Standing still for long periods in the so-called death zone above 26,000 feet dramatically increased the risk of frostbite, heart attack, stroke, pulmonary or cerebral edema, and death. Grubhofer knew that Ernst Landgraf, the member of his climbing party, whom he had seen on Everest summit, had been exhausted at the top. He could just make out Landgraf, obscured by snowfall, clouds, fog, and people, a few climbers behind him. But Grubhofer didn't know how the 64-year-old was holding up. Move it, shouted a climber behind Grubhofer. Oh, shit, Grubhofer thought. This is getting serious. This Chinese woman, he was sure, had no business being on the mountain. Why hadn't her guide screened her ahead of time? Thirty minutes crawled by. Forty-five passed. Still, she wouldn't go down the ladder. For God's sake, another climber exclaimed, raising his arms in disgust. Why is she not moving? For much of the year, climbing Everest is an impossible idea. But each May... The roaring jet stream that torments the mountain subsides just enough to allow Alpinus a shot at reaching the top. Should the weather suddenly turn, the results are often deadly. John Krakauer's Into Thin Air made famous the May 1996 disaster, during which eight climbers, caught in a blinding whiteout, perished from exposure or plunged to their death. The book was a tale of the vicissitudes of nature, the hubris of climbers, and the ineffable lure of the mountain, as well as a reminder that, though Everest had been summited by hundreds, it remains an incredible and dangerous challenge. It was also a scathing portrait of irresponsible guides catering to wealthy, out-of-their-depth dilettantes who were floundering around in what had become an increasingly commercialized enterprise. It was greeted as a wake-up call. But two decades on, the Everest experience often seems to have devolved even further into a circus-like pageant of stunts and self-promotion. In April 2017, DJ Paul Oakenfold outraged mountaineering purists by hosting an EDM concert at the base camp in Nepal. In 2019, three Indian climbers returned home to celebratory crowds after they supposedly summited on May 26, only to be accused of fraud 
after other mountaineers claimed that they never made it past 23,500 feet. And then there are the growing crowds. For 2019's climbing season, Nepal handed out 381 permits to scale Everest, the most ever. The Chinese government distributed more than 100 permits for the northern side. According to the Himalayan database, the number of people summiting Everest has just about doubled in the past decade. And in that time, the mountain has become accessible even to relative novices, thanks to a proliferation of cut-rate agencies that require little proof of technical skill, experience, or physical fitness. Some of these companies don't ask any questions, says Rolf Ustra, an Australian mountaineer and founder of the France-based 360 Expeditions, which sent four clients to the summit in 2019. They are willing to take anybody on, and that compounds the problems for everyone. On May 22nd, the day before Grubhofer reached the top, a long line near the summit had already begun to form. One of those pinned in the throng was a Nepali climber named Nirmal Persia. That morning, Persia snapped a photo of the chaos. The picture showed a near-unprecedented traffic jam on the popular southern side a column of hundreds of climbers snaking along the knife-like summit ridge toward the Hillary Step, the last obstacle before the top, packed jacket to jacket as if they were keyed up for a ski lift in Vail. The image rocketed around the world and, as the events on the mountain were still developing, raised an urgent question. What the hell is going on atop Mount Everest? In the Himalayan mountains, calamity frequently takes shape off in the distance. Events have a way of cascading. Everest was clogged with climbers in late May of that year because of, among other things, a cyclone that had struck weeks earlier, several hundred miles away. Earlier that month, Cyclone Fanny made landfall in India as a massive Category 4 storm blasting warm, wet air westward into the Himalayas. For weeks, snow and wind buffeted Everest, and the climbers and crews who'd come to the mountain hoping for clear, calm skies dug in to wait. At base camp, Kerry Kobler, who was directing Grubhofer's expedition, was feverishly consulting the forecasts, hoping for a break. When the skies finally cleared, suddenly the race was on. We were waiting for good weather at the base camp until May 19, says Dindi Sherpa, one of the lead Nepali guides in the Kobler group, and one of seven Sherpas hired to help the team. It was apparent to him what was going to happen. We have only a two-day window, and all the people are going to summit at the same time. Grubhofer joined the caravan, and by mid-afternoon on Wednesday, May 22nd, he descended to Camp 3, a bleak and windswept slope at 27,390 feet. At these heights, the low air pressure means that the vascular system is receiving far less oxygen than it would at sea level. Most climbers rely on supplemental oxygen. After arriving at camp, Grubhofer hunkered down to sleep. At 11 o'clock that night, he pushed off toward the summit along with some 80 climbers from a dozen other groups, twice as many as usual, according to one veteran Everest climber. 
Grubhofer's aim was to arrive at the summit shortly after dawn on Thursday morning, giving him plenty of time to make the descent before encountering the bad weather that typically sweeps in during the afternoon. He carried a bottle of oxygen that would last him between six to nine hours. His Sherpa guide carried two spares for Grubhofer, as well as one tank for himself. But one hour above the camp, Grubhofer ran into trouble. The snow cover had melted, exposing treacherous patches of bare rock and gravel. You are trying to dig in your crampons, but you are often sliding back, fighting to keep your balance, expending a lot of energy, Grubhofer said. And I asked myself, for the first of a thousand times, should I turn around? After wasting precious time struggling up the rock slope, Grubhofer reached the first of the three difficult steps just below the summit. At least ten other climbers lined up ahead of him, waiting to make the ascent. To do so, climbers had to squeeze sideways into a rock crevice and pull themselves up by a fixed rope. Grubhofer watched several of them flounder and thought, Oh, Jesus, what are they doing here? Two hours later, on the ridge above the second step, he came upon two frozen corpses lying beside the path. Judging from their torn and faded snowsuits and the patches of snow that covered them, Grubhofer could tell that they had been on the mountain for years. One was missing gloves, and the exposed hands had twisted into claws. They seemed to be reaching toward me, he says. The bodies were among as many as two hundred corpses abandoned on Everest, most left behind because of the high cost, up to one hundred thousand dollars, and dangers of recovering them. They're grim reminders of the mountain's perils, and they're likely to become more noticeable. As climate change thaws the mountain, the melting snow and ice are exposing additional corpses each year. Grubhofer looked away. You just move on, he says. You refuse to let it affect you. On the north side as well, Kuntal Joysher, an Indian alpinist famed for summiting Himalayan peaks while subsisting on an all-vegan diet, was trying hard to maintain a similar stoicism, despite what he was seeing. Joysher was attempting his fourth summit of Everest and had fallen in behind three Indian teenagers who seemed to have no idea how to negotiate the ascent of the second step. Fearful and slow, they took over half an hour to cross the step, usually a ten-minute climb for a strong alpinist. I was thinking, Joysher recalls, man, I'm freezing to death and you guys are causing a traffic jam. There was nothing to do but wait his turn in the frigid wind. You are standing at the ledge of a giant boulder, and it's just wide enough to hold your boots with a sheer drop on one side, he says. You are totally exposed. Above step three, the scene got worse. Joysher encountered a Sherpa guide, sprawled in the snow, separated from his client, and utterly exhausted and delirious. His oxygen bottle was empty, and, says Joysher, he had been there a while, and he had no idea what to do. Joysher's Sherpa searched the man's bag, found a full bottle, attached it to the man's regulator, and waited for the oxygen to flow. After ten minutes, he was able to form good sentences and was in good spirits, and he said, Okay, 
I'm ready to go up now. Joysher made the summit at 5.30 in the morning on May 23rd. It was jam-packed at the top. It was crazy, he says. He stayed only ten minutes in the cold and wind before heading back down, desperate to avoid the crush of eighty or ninety people whom he could see approaching from both sides. I like stuff about human adventure. I just do. Everest is definitely in that column. Space exploration is definitely in that column. Very exciting stuff. I'm not talking about action. I'm not talking about Tom Cruise uh, driving a motorcycle off a cliff. (laughs) I'm talking about human adventure. It's a more personal thing. And that's why I really like this story that's going to be coming to you Uh, in the future. I'm not going to say next week because like I said, I don't know what my availability is going to be like. So that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Tom Reads Your Story. Portions were pre-recorded. Please tell your friends if you enjoyed your visit today because we're always looking for new ones. Thanks, Spotify, for this opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, take care, everyone. Bye now. This is Tom Zania. For more information on my availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit my website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again real soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story. Thank you.